During the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Reports from this time say Edwards was not an eloquent speaker by any stretch of the imagination. He didn't really walk around and holler and he didn't preach with any sort of dramatic flair. Uh, Edwards was a Presbyterian and so he stood behind the pulpit. He looked down at his manuscript. He, he never looked up. He never changed the inflection of his voice. He read with a, a low monotone voice the sermon centers in the hands of an angry God. By all accounts, there was nothing that would have been seen as eloquent or flashy or a show or even exciting by natural means. Yet reports from this time also show that as Edwards preached, that men and women would, would hold on to the posts in the church for fear of, of dropping into hell. They would cry out as he preached for him to shut up because they were so afraid of the judgment and the condemnation that was upon them because of their sin. Others actually stopped their ears and ran screaming from the church. Undeterred, Edwards kept reading his manuscript and he ended every sermon with the appeal, Therefore let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly, flee from the wrath to come. And flee they did. According to reports, um, there were thousands and thousands of people who were saved during that time. They, and as they were saved, they, they, they were saved in dramatic ways. They, they did come to the altars. They, they fell on the grounds and laid there maybe hours weeping and crying out to God for mercy and for grace. There was a, a deep awareness of sin and guilt and conviction. They were aware of the fact that they stood condemned before an almighty God and that, that bothered them. It bothered them to the point that when they did begin to cry out to God, they cried out to God until they knew their sins were forgiven. They didn't just pray a sinner's prayer that Edwards led them in and get up and walk on about their business and never come back to the church again. From all accounts, very few of those who were saved or who recommitted their lives to Christ during the, the first great awakening, they were not flash in the pan decisions that once the emotional fervor of that night wore off, that they began to go back into their old ways. Most reports show that the vast majority of those people who were committed themselves to Christ during the Great Awakening, they lived faithfully for Jesus all the rest of their days. Now in our day, we have not seen anything that even resembles something like that. So the temptation for us is to say, probably wasn't quite that dramatic. It probably didn't happen quite like that. Uh, and yet again, it's not just one historical account. It certainly wasn't Edwards himself who wrote this. It was others who chronicled it. And there's enough that we can look at it and say that that is what happened. But not only is it what we know happened in the First Great Awakening, we know from Scripture. There are accounts in Scripture of people responding very similar to that, to the conviction and to the the just the weight of God's Word and the Gospel upon their lives. I mean, take, for instance, the day of Pentecost. Right? Peter preaches that sermon on the day of Pentecost. And as he finishes the sermon, what do the people say? Hey, can I pray a prayer and go on about my life? No, they, they cried out and they said, what must we do to be saved? No limits. We will do whatever you're telling. What do we need to do? You tell us what to do. We're going to do it. And then after that, they committed themselves to the church, to meeting together, to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, to evangelism. They committed themselves to being a part of the church. And the picture of them being cut to the heart, as Scripture says, is very similar to what we read about in the Great Awakening. And the question that this leaves me with is why? Why don't we see that sort of response to conviction in our day. Gosh, I mean, just to be real honest, why don't we even see conviction in our day? Every pastor I know, I knows, every pastor I know, can tell you stories of preaching on sin, of people they know, of people that are there. It wasn't they picked the this, this passage because they were there. They had a passage that dealt with that sin. That person showed up. And they were unbothered by it. They weren't convicted. They weren't angry. They were just, meh, oh well. 
Hey, good message. Why is it in our day that is often the response to preaching or the word when it deals in our sin? And yet in, in the Bible and in church history, the response was to be broken over our sin, to cry out to God in repentance. I believe it's because we don't understand repentance in our day. I think that in our day we kind of believe that repentance is an optional thing. Right? In our day, because repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. Right? I mean, that's the key thing. Repentance is a change of mind about God. I think, okay, I've always thought my way was right. And what God said was fine. I mean, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But now I realize I was wrong. And God was right. But it's also a change of mind about sin. Because prior to repentance, we think our sin is okay. Everybody who lives in sin, if they are not convicted by their sin, they think their sin is okay. Our world is filled with people who don't blush over their sin. They can tell you why their sin, whatever it is, whether it would be adultery or homosexuality or lust or gossip or pride or judgmentalism or hypocrisy, they can look at that and they can say, here's why my sin is fine. But see, repentance doesn't allow for that. Repentance causes us to change our mind about sin and say, my sin, it is wrong. But it also results in a change of life. See, if I'm living in sin, and I repent, let's say I come to the altar, and I repent, I can't get up and then go back into my sin. Repentance isn't just saying, God, forgive me for my sin. And then I go back and do what I've done because my slate's been wiped clean now and now I'm not going to hell. That's not repentance. That's a a sort of a cheesy, greasy, fake, unbiblical grace that, that really doesn't have the power to save anyone from the judgment to come. We don't understand repentance. And so we, we don't respond to conviction properly. And the reason this matters in a series on revival is because one of the characteristics of every genuine revival in the Bible and in history is a great deal of brokenness, repentance. There is no no revival without repentance. Listen to what one of the books I have says. It said, now how, how may we secure such an outpouring of the Spirit? You'll answer, by prayer. True, but there is something before prayer. We will have to deal first of all with the question of sin. For unless our lives are right in the sight of God, unless sin has been put away, we may pray until doomsday and the revival will never come. Then he quotes Isaiah 59 and 2. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you. So that he will not hear. Without repentance, there will be no revival. It doesn't matter how long we pray, how hard we pray, how loud we scream in prayer. It doesn't matter. But it's not just revival, although it is that for our series. Without repentance, without confessing our sin and forsaking it, our entire Christian life is hindered. Our relationship with God is not right. I've, as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I've had people that were living in sin tell me I'm closer to God than I've ever been. And I, I try to take them to Scripture and say, you're lying or you're deceived. Because Scripture says that you, you can't walk in the darkness of sin and in the light with God at the same time. So if, if you really believe that you're living in sin and you're close to God, You have either self-deceived yourself or Satan has deceived you. But dear friend, by no means are you actually close to God while you're living in unrepentant, unconfessed, unbothered sin. So what does genuine biblical repentance look like? Well, let's look at it. Turn to Joel chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. should be on page 689 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm asking you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Joel 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, 
Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments, and turn to the Lord your God. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil. Who knoweth if He will return and repent and leave a blessing behind, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord our God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, let those who suck the breast, let the bridegrooms go forth from His chambers, and let the bride out of her closet, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar, let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to a reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they, the heathen, say among the people, where is their God? I love the message today is revival and repentance, or repentance and revival. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we need, we need a revival of repentance. We need a revival of conviction. We need Hearts that are softened to your word and to your conviction. We need minds that are illuminated by the word so that the darkness of sin doesn't cloud our judgment regarding our sin. We need wills that are submissive to you. That when you say this is sin, we would say, yes, Lord. We would do all that we could to shirk it from our lives. Father, we need you to to plow up the fallow ground of our heart and bring us to deep and genuine repentance for any sin that may be in our lives. We live in a world that takes sin lightly. We live in a world that takes repentance as optional. And yet none of those things are true from your word. So God, today we need you to change our minds about you and about sin and make that result in a change of life that we would leave here more devoted to you than we were when we came. Lord, if there is any area of our life that is out of step with your word and your will, you deal with us harshly about it today. Lord, we we live in a day where things are watery and weak and mamby-pamby. And Lord, that will not save a soul. That will not change a life. That will not make a difference in a community. And so God, do not deal with us with kids' gloves. Do not deal with us lightly. Or there is sin that we are not confessing, sin that we are taking lightly, sin that we are justifying. You press on us and you bring us to deep and abiding repentance. You break our hearts. You let there be an outpouring of conviction as there was on the day of Pentecost till we cry out, what must I do? You let there be an outpouring of your conviction until we cry out as they did on the, in the great awakening that we would cry out and say, oh God, spare me. God, have your way in our hearts today. Help us to lay aside anything that would hinder our listening to you and taking your word to heart. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let your Holy Spirit empower me and guide me. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Joel primarily is addressed to the nation of Israel. uh, Specifically, well, to the nation of Judah, specifically Jerusalem. Now that's significant because... This is not calling unbelievers to salvation so much as it is calling the people of God to repentance. He's calling the people of God from lukewarmness to revival, starting with repentance. Now to understand Joel's message completely, we have to understand the spiritual climate of the time. And as you look through the book of Joel, there are several pictures that are given to us about the spiritual climate of the people in this time. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 5, notice how the people are described. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep. How, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, is cut off from your mouth. Right? The people are called drunkards and told to wake up. And they're like people in a drunken stupor. They are unaware of the times that they're living in. They're unaware of the fact that judgment is coming. And either they did not know how far they had gotten away from God, or they simply didn't care. But what God is calling them to at this point is, wake up, see how far away you truly are, and weep over that care. If you look at verse 11, the prophet says, Gird yourselves and lament, you priests, how you ministers of the altar come. Lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Right? And, and what that's picturing is that the crops are going to fail. Right? They are 
facing judgment. And they're saying, God, what God is basically saying to them, you're acting like everything is okay. Right now you're prosperous. Right now your household is in order. And you think I'm okay with it, but it's not that way. I am about to cause everything to fail around you. And your only hope is to repent and cry out to me for mercy right now. In verse 12, it says of chapter 2, it says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but God is calling on them. Don't keep going the way that you're going. Turn back to me. You used to be mine. You used to follow me. Turn back and do what you did again. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 14, you see that there are multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now, the, the word translated as decision is also used to refer to a sharp-pointed threshing tool. So the picture seems to be of something being precariously balanced upon something and could fall either way. And, and what it pictures is the people of God at this time are... They haven't fully, I mean, they haven't just said, no, no, we don't want God. We're going to go all in on Baal. They're, they're kind of balanced and they're, they could go either way. Depending on the day, depending on the temperature, depending on how much sleep they got, they could go with God's way or they could go Baal's way. But they haven't quite decided. And what God is telling them is choose, choose you this day who you're going to serve. Chapter 2 and verse 13 God tells them to, to rend their hearts and not their garments. Now, the tearing of the clothes in Jewish culture was an outward sign of repentance and sorrow. And what he's saying is they're going through all the motions. Right? They are tearing their clothes and, oh God, we're sorry. And then they get up from doing that and then they go back and do all the things that they did before. But they haven't really let their hearts go back to God. They are kind of going through the outward motions. Kind of like a, a kid who gets caught doing wrong. They know all the right things to say to get out of trouble, but they really don't care about what they've done. That's kind of the picture of the people of God. Oh God, see, we've torn our clothes. Please don't punish us. But as soon as I get up from here, I'm going back to doing exactly what I was doing before. And then one last key we find in verses 1, 9, 1, 13, and 2, 17. Is that the, it says all of them, it mentions the priesthood or the temple. And the implication is the priests, the ministers of the Lord were unconcerned about the people under them. And as long as they were kind of getting what they were due, they didn't care what happened to the people. They weren't interceding for them. They weren't teaching them. They weren't doing anything. Of course, an application for us would be like in the New Testament, we're told that we're all priests unto God, right? So it would be a picture of the people of God, as long as their lives are kind of okay and they're getting all the stuff they need in life, they're really not concerned about the people around them. They're not concerned about their spiritual well-being. They're not concerned about their physical well-being. They're, they're just, my life is fine, so you take care of yourself. I don't have any concern for you. That, that's the picture. This is a nation that outwardly looked religious. They put on a good show. They, they made sacrifices. They, they did all the things that looked right. If you were just to look from the outside, you would say they are devoted to their God. And yet their hearts were not right with God. They were lukewarm. They were indifferent. And because of their sin, because of this lukewarmness, because of this indifference, God is about to bring a terrible judgment upon them. And He warns them here, the only hope they have is to repent. Right? There is nothing you can do that will stop what I'm about to do. And if we were to look at other prophets during this time, we would find God saying, don't go to the Egyptians because they can't help you against what I'm doing. Don't go to the Babylonians because they can't help you against what I'm doing. What he's saying is, the only help, the only hope you have, it, it's me. It's me. And as long as you're forsaking me, as long as you're only turning with your, well, not with your head and not with your heart, judgment's coming, right? 
And, and the picture for us is to understand the only hope the church has is God. That's it. But there's no nothing else we can do. There's not better methods. There's not cooler music. There, there's not better electronic equipment. There's not, there's not a political party. There, there's nothing. If our help does not come from God, then everything falls apart. Everything breaks down. And as a church, as the church, we have to understand that. And then, if we want revival in our hearts, if we want revival in our church and in our community, then we must repent. Because there is no revival without repentance. But if you remember last week, I said that one of the things about revival is we have to be willing to pay the cost. We cannot do as we've always done and expect revival. We cannot live as we've always lived and expect revival. Revival brings change. Always revival brings change. And that change starts with repentance. A change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. So what does genuine repentance look like? Well, first, repentance produces godly sorrow. You see in verses, the end of verse 12, God says to turn even to me with all your heart, fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. But, and, and again, as I mentioned, tearing of the clothes and throwing of the dust was an outward sign of, of deep repentance. And what they were doing was they would hear the messages and they would do that. And then they would just kind of go back and, and do what they always had done. They weren't sincere. They, they weren't truly repenting. But they hadn't changed their mind about God being wrong. They hadn't changed their mind about their sin being wrong. They hadn't changed their mind enough that they would live differently because of what God had said. They, they just wanted to go through the motions and check a box and for God to say, that's good enough for me. You've given me a, an appearance of devotion. That's all I really need. I mean, I'm just the God who created all things. You can just kind of pretend be devoted to me and that's enough. God says that's not enough. You have to turn with all of your heart. There has to be a brokenness over your sin against me. I mean, how many times do, do we do this in our day? How many times do, I mean, and we see it like in, in famous people, right? That, that's the easiest way to pick it up. How many politicians get busted in some sort of indiscretion? I just, I just say, I let my people in my district down. I didn't mean to, I just, I wish I could go back and do it again. Are they different afterwards? Or are they exactly the same, going back and doing the same things? It's the same with big name pastors that fail. I mean, how many big name pastors fail because of some moral sin or because of pride or some sort of deep level of arrogance that destroys their ministry and they do all that and then they just go start another church and they're exactly the same. But it's not just politicians and it's not just big name pastors. It's ordinary, everyday people. Ordinary, everyday people get caught doing things they know they shouldn't and they cry. Done that. In their hearts, they're not any different. They're sorry. They're sorry people found out. They wish nobody knew. And they're trying to probably keep a job, keep their spouse, keep from losing what little bit of honor they have left. There's not any real change. There's just going through the motions doing religious looking things in hopes that will be enough. But that's not repentance. Look at what the Bible says. It says, Now rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were, for you sorrowed, you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. The sorrow of the world worketh repentance unto death, or worketh Sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, Paul contrasts two kinds of sorrow from, from what we would call Holy Ghost conviction. And each sorrow has its own result. 
There is godly sorrow with the result of salvation. And there is worldly sorrow with the result of death. So clearly, these are important issues. But it, it matters. Because if my sorrow over my sin, if it's only a worldly sorrow, there's no life, there's no salvation. There's just spiritual and eternal death waiting on me. So what is the difference between the two? Well, let me explain what godly sorrow is not. Godly sorrow is not being sorry you were caught. I mentioned this to a point. If the only reason you or I are sorry over our sin is because someone found out, we are not sorry for our sin. That is not a godly sorrow. And the way that we know this is, had we not been caught, we would have kept doing it. And typically, if we're only sorry because we got caught, we're already thinking in our minds, okay, how can I do it and not get caught next time? I've got to be smarter than this. That's a worldly sorrow that produces death. Godly sorrow isn't even being afraid God is going to punish us for our sins. But if the only sorrow produced in our life when we sin is because we're afraid that, that God is going to get us in some way, that God is going to break our legs or burn down our house or kill our kids or, or do some other horrible thing somebody has told us God would do because of our sin. That, that is not godly sorrow. To fear God's punishment, that alone is not godly sorrow. It's like John Piper says about heaven. Heaven isn't for people who fear hell. Heaven is for people who love God. Just being afraid God is going to punish me is not godly sorrow that brings life. To be sorry you were caught or sorry because you were afraid, those are examples of worldly sorrow that leads to death. The reason they lead to death is because they never really turn us to God. What they do is they turn us away from our sin for a time. Right? So if I got caught and now I'm sorry about that, that is going to lead me away from that until people forget. Until my wife will trust me again. Uh, until people no longer think, and when they think of me, that's the first thing they think of. And then, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go right back in my sin. Right? And it's the same with being afraid of God's punishment. So what I'll do is, if I, I'm sorry because I'm afraid God's going to break my leg, then what I'll do is, I'll, I'll do my sin, and then I'll, oh God, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, God. And then I'll do good things. And I'll build up my, my good thing account. Okay, I've done 43 good things. And that was it's been a week or two weeks or a month since I did the bad things. Now I've got some cushion. And now I'm going to go back. And I'm going to keep doing this until I, I'm pretty sure my good account is drained. And my bad account is raised up. And now, oh God, oh God, oh God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh God, please forgive me. And it's just a constantly going back and forth from one to the other. But that's not godly sorrow. That's not genuinely turning to God or genuinely turning for our sins. It's pretending. It's pretending until the shame passes. It's pretending until our consciences are soothed enough that we can go back to the way that we want to. Godly sorrow is very different from this. Godly sorrow, we feel grief or sorrow for the sin committed whether anyone finds out or not. Let me ask you, about the last time you, you gave in to a temptation and you sinned, did anyone know, did anyone see Right, so I'm not talking about you blew up at Walmart and had a cussing fit because somebody had 20 items or less than a 10 item or less than that. Right? I'm just saying you did it at home. Nobody saw, not even your spouse. How did you respond to that? Nobody knew. Were you still sorry for the fact that you sinned? Was your heart pricked and pierced because you sinned against a holy God that sent His Son to die on the cross in your place? That's godly sorrow. Right? Godly sorrow is feeling grief and sorrow for the sin, whether God chastises us or not. Right? And, and again, I've, I've known people, I've been this person. I've done things, gone, and been like, hey, nothing bad's happening. God must be okay with it. Woo-hoo! And keep going. See, that's not, even at that point, I'm okay, maybe God is going to see it. I'm about to go on a trip, right? I'm going to trip, and I don't want my tires to blow out, so God, I'm sorry. Godly sorrow is I sin and everything in my right in my life it goes amazingly well. I mean, just like I sin and I get promotions at work, I win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, 
I, I get just amazing things. And I go, God, I, my heart is broken because I've sinned against you. Not because you've punished me, but just because I've sinned against you. That's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is sorrow for sin just because of sin. Just because I sinned against God. I mourn. I regret. I sorrow over that. Now that, that is the godly sorrow that worketh repentance, that leads unto life. We all have to examine ourselves. Because we all failed at various times. I don't know what you fell at. You don't know what I fell at. But I fail. I sin. I don't just mess up. I, I actually sin at times. And, and you do too. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the sin nobody knows about? How do you feel about the sin God doesn't punish you for? Are you broken over it? Or are you basically okay with it? One of the ways you respond is that you have to there there needs to be a godly sorrow over the sin no matter what that is what repentance brings genuine repentance always produces godly sorrow for sin and this is necessary because there is no revival not personally not corporately without repentance secondly repentance turns us to god We're told in verse 12 and 13, God says, turn ye even to me. Verse 13, turn to the Lord your God. Now, if repentance doesn't cause us to turn to God, it isn't repentance. Once I realize I have sinned against God, once that has brought godly sorrow into my life, the next step is to turn to God, seeking His forgiveness, His grace, and His mercy. Now, part of this, I think, in the idea that it turns us to God, is we have to realize we've sinned against God. I mean, that, that's a huge, important point. Do you realize all sin is against God, no matter what else you do? I mean, if I, I walk out in the street and I find some random person, I just punch them in the head as hard as I can. Not only did I sin against them, but I sinned against God. If I embezzle money from the church, not only do I embezzle, not only do I cheat from the church, I have sinned against God. If I commit adultery and cheat on my wife, I've not only sinned against her, I've sinned against God. Right? Every sin is against God because God is the lawgiver. He is the rule maker. And so every time we violate one of His laws, one of His rules, we are saying, I don't need you to tell me what to do, God. Your rules do not apply to me. We see this in King David. David sinned with Bathsheba. He cheated on his wife. He murdered Bathsheba's husband. He took her in. And when he wrote his psalm of repentance, he said, Against you and you alone have I sinned, O God. See, if I don't know my sin is against God, if I think it's just against people who I judged or I gossiped about or or something like that, or it's not that big of a deal, it just was kind of a bad thing, but not not, not that bad, but kind of just not the best thing, I'll not repent. I'm not turned to God. I'll just, I'll just try to fix it. I'll just do better. That, that's the, if you want to know a sign of non-repentance, I'm going to just do better. That's not repentance. So here's the reality. You can't do better. On your own, you and I, we can't do better. Do you know how we do better? We go to God and we get the grace to help us in our time of need. Only by God can we do better. So if I'm sorry and I'm going to do better next time, I haven't really turned to God. I must turn to God. But notice how God is described in verse 13. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in kindness, and it repenteth Him of evil and repenteth Him of evil. It means He relents of the wrath that he's planning. It means that he he changes his mind. How great is our God? How great is our God to the point that we sin against Him? We do these horrible things against Him, and yet He is kind. 
He is gracious. He is merciful. And one translation says there at the last, He is eager not to punish. How awesome is our God. I thought all week about that, that picture of God being eager not to punish us. Is that, is that your view of God? Eager not to punish? Now He will. But He's eager not to. That is amazing. I thought about it as a dad. Right? There were a, a, a lot of times I never really liked punishing the girls. I didn't. I never liked punishing my daughters. I only did it when I felt like I really had to. And when they were younger, there were a lot of times when I, I wanted to do good things for them. I had planned to do good things for them. But they just wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. So they missed out on what I wanted to do for them, what I wanted to give them. I can remember times where, I don't know if I actually said it, but I, at least I thought in my mind, stop, if you'll just stop, if you'll just stop, and do what you're supposed to do, we'll go get ice cream, we'll go to the park, we'll go to the carnival, but please, just stop. I can remember multiple times being so disappointed for them, not in them, but for them, because they missed out on the good things I wanted to do, would have done, simply because they wouldn't obey. I think that's how God is with us. I think that's how God is. That He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in kindness, and eager not to punish us. That's why the prophets went to the people so much. He was saying, come on. If you'll just turn around and stop. I'll change everything. Let me, let me show you this. This is great. Turn to Psalm 81. Page 451. Look at verse 8. So here's God speaking. Hear, O my people, and I will testify unto thee, O Israel, thou wilt hearken unto me. There shall be no strange God in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. So here's God saying, I, here's what I want from you. I love you. If you'll listen to me, and if you won't worship any other gods, and here's why. Because I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Notice this last part. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. So God says, you're my people. Don't just do what I say. Don't worship any false gods. Now remember, I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I've delivered you and carried you and blessed you, cared for you. Now, now if you'll hearken unto me and if you'll open your mouth, I will just pour blessing after blessing into your life. But notice how the people responded. But my people would not hearken unto my voice. And Israel would wanted none of me. So that's their response. So God responds to, look at what he says. So I gave them up to their own hearts. Lust and they walked, their own hearts lust and they walked in their own counsels. Whew. Now you know one of the scariest things God could ever do in our lives? Give us exactly what we want. That's what he did. They didn't want God. They wanted to do their own sin. They wanted to do whatever their little heart desired. They wanted to do it. And so God stopped restraining them. And God just said, enjoy. And it was bad. It all went really, really bad for them. So how do you think God felt about them? Look at the next verse. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me. And Israel had walked in my ways. Because right? this is picturing judgment has come. Right? The, the Babylonians probably have come. I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto Him, but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them the finest wheat with honey out of the rock, should I have satisfied them. What he's saying is, they, they turned and God gave them over and let them do whatever they wanted to, and so that brought judgment, that brought bad guys into their land. And the picture is, as the bad guys were encamped around the city, if they had, even in that moment, if they had turned to God and said, Oh God, we're truly sorry. They had rent their hearts and not just their garments. They had returned to the Lord their God. Then He Himself would have fought against those enemies. He would have knocked them down. He would have brought them into submission. And then He would have poured blessing after blessing into their lives. But they missed all of that because they would not turn unto God. And when we do not turn unto God, this is a picture of us. 
Right? Because God has told us exactly what He wants for us. How we should live, how we should act, how we should talk, how we should be. And when we want none of that, and we choose to live our own way, then God restrains us, God convicts us, God works against us doing that. But the time may come when God says, okay, enjoy. And everything falls apart in our lives then. But even in that moment where everything has fallen apart and it's all our fault, even then God says, turn to me. And I will conquer your enemies. Turn to me and I will defeat what's holding you down. I will bring you through. I'm still here if you will just turn to me. They didn't. And so they missed everything. And as long as we don't, we absolutely miss everything as well. We must turn back to God. And I know this is what God wants for us. Because of the high price He paid for us. I mean, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you, do you really think that, that God would invest the life and the blood and the death and the broken flesh of His only begotten Son just to abandon us in our time of need, even if that time of need was all our fault? Of course not. Of course not. He has paid a high price for our redemption. He did it because He loved us, not because He had to. Nothing compelled God to do what He did in the Gospel except His love for you and His love for me. And now, if we need to repent, He is saying, quit being so dead, blamed, stubborn. Quit trying to fix it yourself. Quit thinking it's okay. Quit looking for a ten-step program. Quit going to some weird, freaky spirituality. Quit reading some other religious book. Quit looking to a pastor. Quit looking to a podcast. Turn to me. And when we do, the promise is He will come and He will fight for us. That does require us to go to God, it does require us to take ownership of our sin. It, it requires me to, to refuse to say, well, I'm not as bad as. It, it requires me to refuse to say, tomorrow I'm going to start making changes. It requires me to go to God and say, I have blown it. It's all my fault. I can't even imagine how you haven't smoked me to death right now. Please, dear God, be gracious and merciful and kind and relent of your wrath over me today. And the promise is He will. Because that and that alone is genuine repentance. And repentance, it is necessary. It is required for revival. Then go ahead and turn back to Jonah. No, Joel. And the last aspect of repentance is that repentance changes us. This is the key step. Well, it's not the key step. It's one of the three key steps. But notice what happens in verse 15. Okay, so they're supposed to rend their heart, not their garments. They're supposed to turn to the Lord their God, knowing that He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in kindness. He relents of wrath. So here's what they're to do now. If you're truly repenting, he says, if you're truly turning to me, blow a trumpet, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, get the congregation together, and let them all basically just pictures them laying down mourning and weeping and crying out to God to spare his people. See, God isn't content for them to just say they've repented. He want, there must be something. There must be a response 
that demonstrates it, right? Because repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. So now they're going to have to, if they really have repented, here's what they're going to do. The leaders of the people are going to blow the trumpet and everybody's going to come to the temple. And the priests are going to get between the altar where God is, the porch where the people are, and they're going to lay down and they're going to cry out to God and they're going to say, Spare thy people. Give not thy heritage to the reproach. Do not let the heathen rule over them. Why should they say, Where is your God? And as the priests and the prophets lay down and cry out for that, the other people, they're going to fast. They're not going to eat. They're not going to drink. They are going to come up there and they are going to lay down and they are going to cry out to God for mercy as well. See, that's the... That's that final step, that sign that they have truly repented. They are now going to do something different because of God's message to them. There are, unfortunately in our day, many who believe that repentance is just asking God to forgive us. And that's a part of repentance, but that's not repentance. I mean, when you read Scripture, it's interesting. Did you know that when you read Scripture, that there are people who went to God and they said, they confessed, I have sinned. And yet, they weren't forgiven. And they weren't forgiven because there was no genuine repentance. There was some emotion. There was some worldly sorrow. But there was no change of life. Right. So let me give you some examples. Book of Exodus. Pharaoh, God's working To bring his people out. He's destroying all of Egypt's gods. On two different occasions. Pharaoh cries out and he says. I have sinned. But did Pharaoh actually turn to God in repentance? He did not. You know how we know? Because he refused to let the people go. After making those statements. In the book of Numbers. The heretical prophet Balaam. Said I have sinned. That the donkey talked to him. And the angel of the Lord was there. And. He was terrified. God was about to smite him with the sword of an angel. I have sinned. Did he repent? No. You know how we know? Because when he went to the camp of the people, of the people he was there to help, he still used, he still tried to help Balak bring destruction to the Israelites. Gave them a plot that would bring about God's judgment upon them. In the book of Joshua, Achan steals a wedge of gold and some Babylonian garments and he gets caught. And it's, it's time. It's D-Day. He's right here. God has picked him out. And now he's about to die. And he says, I have sinned. He wasn't sorry that he sinned. He was sorry he was about to die. And it was too late. There was no grace. There was no mercy for him. King Saul said, I have sinned. But it didn't come from a humble heart. He was still filled with defiance and pride. The kingdom was still taken from him. He went further and further into depravity. Judas betrayed Jesus. When he realized what he had done, he said, I I have sinned. But it wasn't repentance because rather than turning to the Lord, you know what he did? He went out and he hung himself. Genuine biblical repentance is more than saying, I have sinned. It brings about a change of life. Let Let me show you. 1 Thessalonians. It says, for they themselves show us what manner of entering we in we had unto you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. Right? There are three elements of genuine repentance right there. Turn to God, turn from sin, began to serve God. So that's the change of life. This morning, I hope we all are convicted about the sin in our life. And I hope there's sorrow produced over our sin. But if we get up from praying and we walk out and there's nothing different about us other than the fact that we maybe cried a little bit or felt a little bad, we have not repented. There must be a change of life. Repentance turns us from sin to live with and to serve the Lord. Now, 
at quick times, I know time is gone. Look at verse 18. And what God says. God's response. Then will the Lord be jealous for His land and pity His people. The Lord will answer. So the Lord is going, He says, if you do this, I'm going to hear from heaven. I'm going to do something in response. You go on down to verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. So when we think about revival, we think about prayer. We think about God hearing and God moving. And we think about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But notice in this, both of those come after repentance. After repentance, the Lord will hear and the Lord will act. After the Lord has acted, He will then pour out His Spirit Upon us. If we want God to hear and act on behalf of our families, our church, our community, if we want God to pour out His Spirit on our church so that there would be revival here in us, in our church, and renewal in our community, there must be repentance, but not, not repentance from the unbelievers. The repentance God's talking about here, that's for us, for believers. We must repent. Then God will hear. Then God will pour out His Spirit. The greatest hindrance to revival in our time, it is not the atheists, it's not the secularists, it's not the homosexual agenda, it's not the transvestites, it's not the LBGTQ community, it's not Islam. It's not Democrats. It's not Republicans. It is a refusal to repent from Christian people. God wants to hear and He wants to work. He he died for all of the people in this community. He wants to work powerfully in our church. He wants to pour out His Spirit upon us. As long as we are refusing to repent, He will withhold it. He is under no obligation to do anything we are not willing to repent as He has commanded. So do you need to repent this morning? Do you need to spend time crying out to the Lord for forgiveness, for mercy? Do you need to let there be a godly sorrow over your sin? Do you need to turn to the Lord? Do you need to go out and be different if so then you have to do it I can't repent for you your spouse can't repent for you your parents can't repent for you your children can't repent for you we're going to have a time of response if you want to come forward you can if you want to stay where you are you can but whatever happens in these next few moments between you and God it will be because of what you do. Let's all stand.